So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I know Pastor Kimbrough last week, um, I think his was observations on head coverings or something like that, or at least that's how it showed up on Sermon Audio. I didn't know Pastor Kimbrough was going to uh, continue on the same theme, perfectly fine, and what he said is completely and perfectly applicable. He was looking at it more, I think, from a practical perspective and just some of his observations over the years of attitudes uh, and maybe some methods uh, of different folks. Um, So I want to come back more specifically to the text of Scripture and really just in very good detail exposit exactly what the Apostle Paul has said, uh, deal along the way with questions, um, arguments, objections, etc. as we go. So let's just read the passage. We'll start there. We'll read the passage, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse number 2. Remember, verse 1 is really the end of verse 10, or chapter 10, I'm sorry. So 1 Corinthians 11, we'll start at verse number 2, and then read through to the end of verse number 16. So 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things, and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. Now we'll pause here just a minute because we just said what are the ordinances of the church and here the word ordinance is used and we didn't mention head coverings as one of the ordinances in the catechism. That particular word ordinance, if you remember from two weeks ago, um, really has the idea of tradition. Uh, Tradition can be wrong. Uh, Tradition can really be superstition. This is not superstition, but this is tradition in the sense that it is the common practice in the church. Okay, so in that sense of tradition. Um, so the word ordinance here is not used in the same way that we use ordinance as a, a sacrament of baptism and the Lord's table. Okay, so now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one, as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, forasmuch as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman is of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman For the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely? that a woman pray unto God uncovered. Doth not even nature itself teach you 
that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Amen. So there is the passage relevant to what we're uh, dealing with, the subject of head coverings in public worship. And so this passage, as I mentioned, we're just a little overview of what we've dealt with before since it was two weeks ago, uh, and kind of get a running start into what we're dealing with now. This passage does deal with the subject of women wearing head coverings in public worship, but it also deals with the subject of men wearing head coverings in public worship. It deals with both. We focus on the fact that a woman ought to wear a head covering, but the passage just as clearly and, and really to the same extent deals with the fact that a man ought not to wear a head covering during public worship. So it, it deals with both. And we dealt with this last week. I'm not going to get into all the, the nitty-gritty of, of all of it, but um, I use that term public worship because we have to deal with exactly what it means in verse number four. That, that really is a crucial interpretive point that really is going to be a hinge for so many as to how exactly they take this passage. And the question has to do with what does Paul mean when he says praying or prophesying? Because a man during this or, or while this is taking place is not to have his head covered, but a woman while this is taking place, should have her head covered. So what is praying or prophesying? And we talked about some of the differences of opinion on this and how different people take it. Um, but just to settle the fact of the way our church and our denomination has interpreted this from the beginning of our denomination, that the praying or prophesying has to do with the the totality of public worship, the public worship of God's people. And so we raise some of the questions. You know, in a ladies' meeting where it's only the ladies of the church, you know, at Jan's home on a Tuesday night, is that the public worship of the church? Well, we would say in those situations, no, that is not a, a public worship service. That is an informal gathering of Christian people all ladies. There are no men present. And so part of this uh, verse 10, we'll get to today, Lord willing, this symbol of authority, uh, that word power there, that symbol of authority on her head doesn't come into play in the same way because there are no men present that she is demonstrating that submission to. So, you know, we would argue, well, that's not a public worship service. We even ask the question about Sunday school. You know, is our Sunday school class a public worship service? Do you need to wear a head covering during Sunday school, or is it okay to wait and not put your head covering on until church starts, you know, at 11 o'clock? Um, that might be more of a pragmatic, practical thing. You mess your hair all up, and I know you ladies care about what your hair looks like, so you just keep the thing on the whole time. Maybe it's more of a practical thing. But that's a, a legitimate question to ask. You know, what is a public worship service? And there might be some flexibility in definitions as to how far you take that, right? So some would insist upon women wearing a head covering, say, for example, at a wedding. 
maybe even a funeral. Others would look at something like a wedding and a funeral and say, well, you know, this is not the same thing. This is not the public worship service. Um, you know, we were talking about prayer meeting. Well, a prayer meeting, obviously praying, um, but is it limited only to the person who, as I quoted one commentator last week, is the mouthpiece of the congregation? So does that mean if the woman is not praying out loud, it's okay? Or does it apply only if she does pray out loud? Then if she's to pray out loud, well, then she has to put on a head covering. You know, there, there's, some, there's some questions there, and we talked about some of those different things. But one of the other points of emphasis that I want to make sure is clear for us all is that this particular passage, one of the big objections to it is that it's just a cultural thing for Corinth. This didn't apply to the church at large. I think Pastor Kimbrough touched on this last week just very briefly. Um, but it's very clear from the context that Paul is writing this in the book of 1 Corinthians that it is far more than just a local church Corinth issue. Because if you go all the way back to chapter 7, just let's just look at that just real quick. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He leads into this new section of the book with these words, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, and then he begins to answer their questions. And we take that as a, a pivotal point in the whole book that Paul now is addressing these things that the Corinthian church had asked uh, about things related to the church. But the things that he deals with and the questions that he answers are not just local Corinth. They are body of Christ at large. They would apply uh, to all of the churches. So he deals with marriage in chapter 7. You come to chapter 8, all the way to the beginning of chapter 11, verse 1. Uh, he deals with the subject of Christian liberty. Here in the first part of chapter 11, with head coverings. The last part of chapter 11, starting in verse 17 to the end, he deals with the Lord's table and, and how we act and behave and what we do at the Lord's table. Chapter 12, he deals with spiritual gifts. Chapter 13, one very specific gift of love. And then in chapter 14, he deals with prophecy or preaching and speaking in tongues. And then at the end of chapter 14, uh, orderly conduct during worship. And so this whole section from chapter 7 to the end of chapter 14 is dealing with issues in the church. Not the Corinthian church, but the body of Christ. All churches that, that meet. And so when we come down to kind of a synopsis of the passage and a, a big outline of the passage, we see uh, the teaching of the passage. This is actually what Paul is, is teaching us in verses 3 to 6. And then verses 7 to 12, he gives us spiritual reasons to support what he has said. And then in verses 13 to 15, he gives what we could call natural reasons uh, to support what he is saying. Um, maybe we could look at those, instead of calling them natural reasons, he just gives an illustration from nature to support, or to help support uh, what he has taught in verses 3 to 6. And so the basis of all this is the subject of headship. Uh, the subject of 
hierarchy, if you want to put it that way, um, but the subject of headship. And so look at verse number three. He says, there's something that I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. And so he, he speaks of this hierarchy of relationship that the wife is under and subject to the man, the husband. And I did make the point, and uh, we'll point this out a little bit more later. So all through this passage, it never uses the word anthropos. So anthropos is the, that generic word for man. Sometimes anthropos does refer to the male of the species, um, but it, it more often than not just refers to man in general. So a woman can be an anthropos in that, you know, grammatically in that setting, but anthropos is just more of that generic term for humanity. Um, what's used here are different Greek words consistently through the passage. It uses the word for man in the sense of male, but that word is also translated as husband very often in the New Testament. And it uses a word for woman, a female, but that word is often translated as wife. And so we can read this, and you can say husband, wife, when you see man, woman in this passage. Um, and sometimes husband and wife is the point and is the way we need to understand it. There are other times in the passage that it is more generic, men and women, males, females, uh, that more generic sense. Um, you know, there, there's more here than just head covering. There's, there's complementarian, egalitarian arguments that go on in this passage as well that we have to wrestle with and come to understand. And we can't get away from the fact that this passage specifically and the whole Bible as a whole really does emphasize and teach a complementarian view of marriage and not an egalitarian one. Um, that is maybe for another Sunday school lesson. But those arguments have to come into play, and, and we will deal with some of those today when we come to these spiritual reasons for head coverings, especially when we come to verses 7, 8, and 9. But the wife is under the man. It's not so much that all females are subject to all males. That's not the point here. But the wife is subject to her husband, to her own husband, not to everybody else's husband, but the wife is subject to her husband. The man, the, the husband, the man, but that doesn't matter, is subject to Christ and then Christ to God. And so that's the foundation of what he's dealing with here. We're dealing with an issue of headship, and we're also dealing with the issue of submission to authority. That, that really is the point of the whole passage when you get right down to it. But then he comes into the teaching in verse number 6, and, and here is what we're to do. The man dishonors his head when he has his head covered. The woman dishonors her head when she has her head uncovered. Now, who is the man's head? Who is he dishonoring if he covers his head during worship? Who is his head? Christ, right? So he dishonors Christ by covering his head, 
the woman dishonors whom in covering her head? And so you would think that the answer is her husband. Well, there's a sense in which that's true, but the problem is with the grammar. We have to stick to the text, and we, we have to pay close attention to the text. In verse number four, it's ambiguous, where it says that the man dishonoreth his head. So in Greek, a very literal translation would be, he dishonors the head of him. Well, that can be taken two ways. It could be that it dishonors his own personal head, so in that sense, he dishonors, he brings dishonor to himself, or it could mean that he dishonors his head that was spoken of in verse number three, which is Christ. Now, for various reasons, I take it to be he dishonors Christ. I think that's the way to understand this. Now, there's a very strong argument for the other one, and the strong argument for the other one is to keep the parallelism in the passage because we come, when we come to verse number 5, the grammar is very, very clear. We don't have the, the same subjective grammar in verse number 5, where it says that the woman um, prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, uncovered dishonoreth her head. Now, the grammar there makes it very clear, and there's no way to get away from this, she dishonors her own head. So she dishonors herself. That's the grammar in verse 5. So we can't say verse 5 that she dishonors her husband. She does, but that's not proven from verse number 5. That concept is proven from the totality of the passage. So verse 5 makes it clear she, that she brings dishonor or shame to herself personally. Now, why is that? And verse 6 goes on to explain that. Um, well, verse 5 continues the idea. So she, she brings dishonor to herself because it's just like if she were shaven. That's the type of dishonor and that's the type of shame that she brings to herself. Verse 6, for if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn or, or shaven. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Now, in Greek, when we see the word if, we have to pay closer attention. So let me illustrate this with Colossians 3 and verse 1. So this is a verse you all know and a verse you've all heard sermons about, and, and I think I hope you know the grammar there. So Colossians 3.1 says... If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Right? So, if ye then be risen with Christ. And I, th I think you've all heard preachers make the point that that word if really should be translated as since. Since it's true that you are risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. So, I preached on that a couple weeks ago. So, the, the reason we say that it's the word sense is because in Greek there are various types of conditional clauses. There's what we call a first class, a second class, and a third class condition. And one of those three classes of condition, the third class condition, is something that is assumed to be true for the sake of argument. 
And so that's the, that's the grammar, the Greek grammar in Colossians 3 and verse 1. Since it's true that you're risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. We have the same construction here in chapter 11, verse 6. Since it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaven, then let her be covered. So since it is true that that is a shameful thing, then wear a head cover. That's, that's what Paul is arguing here. And so, um, yeah, okay, so now we'll come, now we're coming to the, the new thing, the, the new part that we haven't gotten to yet. So really that starts in verse number five, what I've dealt with. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonors her head and her own head. So we've made that point. And verse 6, if the woman is not covered, then let her be consistent. That's the point that he's making there. If you're going to shame yourself, then why don't you just go all the way and shave your head? That's really the argument that Paul is making here. A woman in public worship that has her head uncovered dishonors her head because it is to look like, it is to act like one that has disgraced herself uh, in, in a, the idea, at least culturally, and again, this isn't just a, a whole cultural thing, but the idea is that it is disreputable, it is shameful for a woman to have a shaved head. Now, Paul's going to illustrate that starting in verse number 13, judge for yourselves, he's going to illustrate that from nature. Even nature itself tells you that it's a shameful thing for a woman to be shaved, or her head shaved. So that is the point there. Let's move on now um, into these spiritual reasons given in verse 7. That really comes the heart of what we need to deal with today in 15 minutes. Good luck. So verse 7 begins the spiritual reasons supporting what Paul has taught in verses 4, 5, and 6. And those spiritual reasons begin with the reasons why a man should not wear a head covering. And so Paul does make that specific point. A man ought not to. A woman ought to. A man ought not to. And so why ought a man not to wear a head covering? He gives three reasons. The first one is because man was created in the image of God, verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. So man was created in the image of God. And that's the first reason Paul gives why a man ought not to wear a head covering. Uh, the second one in verse 8 is because the man came first in God's created order, and he was given dominion over the earth. The man was. And then verse 3, I'm sorry, no, I have it numbered 3. Verse 9, the third reason he gives is because the man was not created to serve the woman. The man is the head of the woman. The husband is the head of his wife. We get to verse number 10, and he goes into reasons why a woman ought to wear a head covering. 
it's for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. And so when he comes to that in verse 10, when he says, for this cause, well, for what cause? Well, it's what he's just talked about in verses 7, 8, and 9. And so we have to go back to verse 7, 8, and 9 and look at the other side of each of those verses. And so we'll come to do that in just a moment. But verse 10 is important for us to deal with before we we go back up to verses 7, 8, and 9. So Paul says, for this cause ought the woman to have power on her head. Okay, so I ask this often. Andrew's not here. I know Andrew has a different version. You have New King James? Debbie? You have ESV. Will you please read verse 10 in the ESV? Oh, the ESV doesn't do that. Okay. I'm sorry, I changed Okay. <laughs> you just read what I read. The ESV plagiarizes the King James. Can you believe that? Pure plagiarism. There's places the NIV does that too. They just quote the King James. Do you have it up? Okay. That's okay. Sorry. I thought you had it. Does anybody else have another translation that you're looking at? Don't be embarrassed. We'll deal with that in another lesson, too. <laughs> okay, so read that again. Okay, so you see the ESV has actually taken that word, the Greek word gune, and they've not translated it as woman. They've translated it just outright. They've translated it as wife. And instead of the word power, they're translating the word authority. That's, that's the word. It's the, the Greek word exousia, which is power or authority. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. That's exousia, all authority. But they've added, it's not in italics, the ESV doesn't, necessarily do italics like the King James does to, to supply uh, a grammatical or a, a translational smoothness. But they add that word symbol of authority. Right? So they don't just leave it um, a, a little bit unambig- or ambiguous like the King James does where it says that the woman ought to have power on her head. Well, what does that mean? Symbol of authority really is a very excellent way of communicating what Paul is, is meaning by that word exousia. And so the New American Standard translates it that way. The ESV does. The NIV does. Even the New King James adds that word symbol of authority um, before the word authority. And, and the New King James um, doesn't use the word power there in verse 10. It uses the word authority, symbol of authority. And that really captures the force of Paul's statement. And so this is a sign, it's a symbol of the husband's authority over his wife, and it is a symbol of a wife's submission to that authority. That's what Paul is saying in verse number 10. It's a symbol of authority. So 
If we understand it from that perspective, everybody look around, right? So we have like a three or four inch band, right? We have a knitted, what are those things called? A beret, okay? And then we have doilies, right? And when we have, and then we have like a hat, right? And we've got all different kinds of stuff, right? So if you go to Mexico, almost all the ladies, man, almost all of them wear a veil. So imagine winter scarf that you would put around your neck, right? You know, a, a, like a long scarf. They would wear that scarf, and when they would come in to church or, you know, on their way to church, they would just have that around their neck. And then at, at the service time, they would pull that up over their head. And so it's a veil, you know, it's a whole scarf thing that covers, you know, literally their whole head. Um, and would even cover all of their hair. Um, and some people do make a point of that. Um, but that's not the point. Right? The point is a symbol. It, it is a visible sign of submission and being under authority. Um, we'll use the last five minutes just to explore some of this. Again, some of the objections, some of the questions that perhaps naturally arise from wrestling with this and trying to understand this. And so I made the point and acknowledged that the ESV just goes ahead and translates in verse 10 the word woman as wife. And the ESV actually does that quite consistently through the passage. It uses wife and husband rather than man and woman. Sometimes it does say man or woman, I think in a couple of the verses where that the point is more generic than husband and wife, but it often does make that point of husband and wife. And so I think the question is legitimate to ask, what about a woman that's not a wife? Right? So if the passage is talking about a wife, then do adult single ladies need to wear a head covering? Do they have that same responsibility to show submission to their husband? They don't have a husband. And so where are they left in, in what to do with this? If, if this is the symbol, it's a symbol of submission, it's a symbol of I'm under authority and I submit to that authority. If she has no husband, then what responsibility does she have in this passage? The other question that I think uh, arises, and, and one that families wrestle with, what about our daughters? At what age should we start requiring our daughters to wear head coverings? You know, does, does a, a one-week-old, two-week-old little baby girl that comes to church need to have a head covering? She doesn't even know where she is, right? Do, do, do we wait till our daughter has some you know, level of consciousness and self-awareness before you do that? Do we, do we want to open the can of worms of age of accountability? Um, do we want to say when she is 13 and becomes a teenager or not until she gets married? Right? Those are all questions that people have wrestled with. There's various answers 
I will um, give you my personal opinion. This is not, this is time out from text of scripture uh, in uh, 1st Derek chapter 1. It's probably into chapter 19 or 20, but that's beside the point. My opinion is this, that a single woman, if she still lives in her parents' home, well, she's under the authority and responsibility of her father, and she still is to uh, give that subjection and reverence to her father, who is her spiritual head in that context. If a woman is you know, disconnected from her family and is in some other place and is in a church, then she is under the headship of I don't know how else to say this, but the, the session, uh, the elders, the oversight of that local congregation um, is her spiritual safety, her spiritual safeguards. Um, it's not a Sunday school lesson on church membership, but this is one of the reasons why it's dangerous for a Christian not to be a member of a church because you really are you're rogue. You're not under the authority of anybody. You're, you're just a rogue believer. Um, and I don't think the Bible teaches that. The, the Bible teaches every place a hierarchy of authority and our submission to authority in all spheres, all, all over the place, and all the different responsibilities that we have in life. This is my opinion. Right? I, I have my opinion for a reason. Um, so a single woman, still in her father's home, regardless of how old she is, um, she still lives in her father's home under her father's authority. Um, and so my opinion from that naturally flows to our daughters younger, you know, you know legally below 18, whatever, um, are still under their father's authority. So the same would hold true. And so our personal family's practice has always been, um, sorry Maggie, but you're the example here, We've always required, you know, Maggie to wear a head covering, you know, I guess since she could keep it on. When she was like a baby baby, she'd, you know, pull the thing off. But she didn't know what she was doing. Right? She's not being rebellious necessarily. She just was two, right? Um, but we've always required that. Um, teaching that sense of submission and headship from the very beginning. That's my opinion. That, that's my answer to the question. But we come back here um, to the verses, and we'll get into this next week, and we'll just try to finish this out next week. And that is the reasons that Paul says that a woman ought to wear a head covering. And I'll just give you the three reasons, and then we'll come to deal with them next time. The first one is because the woman was created to be a crown and glory to her husband. So that's in verse number 7. The man was created in the image of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. That's the first reason. The second one is that the, the woman is created from the man. That's verse number 8. And then in verse number 9, it's because the woman was created for the sake of, 
for the benefit of the man. Those are the three reasons uh, that are given there in verses 7, 8, and 9. So we'll come back and we'll deal with those more specifically uh, next week. And then we'll deal with the natural reasons. And Lord willing, just wrap this up uh, next Lord's Day. So let's close in prayer. I've probably given you all a lot more questions than you have before we started. Uh, but worthy of discussion and consideration. Just trying to wrestle with what has Paul said here? What is, what is he teaching? What is he communicating? And how are we supposed to understand this? So may the Lord help us. But let's close in prayer now. Our Father, we do thank you for what you've communicated in your word. And even as we've dealt with passages that are difficult and passages that a lot of people have different opinions and views on, we pray for clarity, we pray for help, we pray for humility, and we pray for Christian charity to abound as we try to understand your truth and understand how best to apply it in our own lives to serve you and to live for your glory. We ask that as we continue on in our worship service here to follow, that we would know your help. We pray for Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches today, that you would fill him with your spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.